Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The tone is more positive in markets today, and a lot of people are, are saying that this is because the trade tensions between U.S. and China have eased. Why? Well, it, it all has to do with this company, ZTE Corporation. And here to tell us what happened and what the significance of this is, is Leland Miller, chief executive of the China Beige Book International in New York. Leland, thank you so much for being with us. So just lay out in broad strokes what happened and why this is a huge deal in your opinion. Well, there's a lot of things that are going on on the on the trade side, and you, you've got the tariffs list, multiple tariff lists. We've got investment protection regimes that have have been rumored for a long time. Uh, you also have a crackdown on on certain corporates, and the one that China is really really upset about is this recent crackdown on ZTE, which is one of their major telecom firms. It's one of the two big ones, along with Huawei. And what essentially was done over the past month until potentially. Uh, pulled, <laughs> reversed by a tweet uh, over the over the weekend was a um, a, a near life, almost a ban, uh, a lifetime ban of, of the ZTE equipment. ZTE was not going to be sold in the United States. They were being punished for violation of U.S. law. Essentially, the U.S. was going to put ZTE out of business, and and now. Well, hold it's on a not. second. So the Commerce Department enforced uh, certain uh, bans on ZTE products, uh, and the reason why was because they had been selling uh, to Iran and North Korea. Is that right? It is, and then they lied about it and were caught lying about it. And so this was a particularly egregious example of the Chinese cheating. You know, if the if the entire um, the entire U.S. China trade push is about cutting down on China's cheating, then this was the ultimate example of brazenness and uh, and cheating that hurt U.S. consumers and U.S. national security. And so the reversal of this has significant repercussions beyond just a concession or a, a chit that the president is offering up. ZTE uses components that are made by Qualcomm and Intel, correct? Correct. And those companies cannot sell those products to ZTE because of current regulations. That was that was the recent uh, decision, yes. Okay. So the president would have to reverse that in order to allow that to take place. Correct. And what's happening right now is that is that the Commerce Department came out with some very strong language about how much ZTE had transgressed over the past few years. Uh, Wilbur Ross had headed that up. And now what the tweet suggests is that President Trump has ordered Secretary Ross to reevaluate his conclusion on this and to find a way to get around it. So it puts Secretary Ross in a very difficult position here uh, because some of the stuff he said is really impossible to, to walk back. All right. So let's zoom out a little bit because a lot of people are looking at this deal and saying, well, this is this shows that President Trump is taking a softer line with China is perhaps not as interested in having a trade war that a lot of people say no one, nobody can win. This is a good thing for world peace and world commerce. Why? Why is that not the case? Well, it, the the question is, you know, what is the U.S. side pushing for? I mean, that's been the question from day one, and it has not yet been answered. If this is pushing towards a more equal relationship, if this is pushing for um, a, a 
a reckoning on the trade theft to eliminate hurdles for the future, then all of this is is good. Nobody wants a tariff war. Nobody wants a trade war. But if you're if you're showing if you're from a U.S. perspective, if you're showing weakness that a foreign company can exert some economic leverage over you and have you reverse national security decisions, it's a problem. It's also a problem if you go into a trade negotiation thinking that the trade deficit is what you should be negotiating instead of market access or uh, intellectual property theft or some of these other important things that really do affect businesses and consumers. So the question is, what have we done this all for? And if it ends up being something that sort of dwindles out over, over the course of the next few weeks and months, which, which I don't think will happen, then, then you, you're basically telling China that, they've, that they have a, a ready-made formula for putting this behind them, and um, they don't have to, to worry about these things, which just a few weeks ago were worthy of a trade war. So it's, it's, it's all very bizarre. Does it also matter that it coincides with the visit to the United States of the Vice Premier Liu He? the Chinese trade negotiator? So the what was told by the Chinese to the U.S. side was that they wouldn't have the delegation unless CTE was taken care of. So uh, the president wanted to make sure this trade delegation happened, not mostly because there was trade stuff to, discover, uh, to discuss, but also because North Korea is playing into this. And so you've got a, a few different issues at play here. You don't want disruption in front of the North Korea summit. You don't want uh, any of this trade war stuff to blow up before the U.S. has a plan in place. And they've been very slow getting the documents for 301 ready. So the president apparently did not want to lose steam on this and and decided to, to make the ZTE decision. Um, that said, all of this is part of a long process and, and whether Liu He visits this week and they come to a mini bargain or mini, mini deal not a bargain um, then you know, this is something that's going to go on for a long time. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Leland Miller is the chief executive of China Beige Book International. You can follow uh, their work on Twitter at China Beige Book, uh, talking about the uh, president of the United States, Donald Trump, and his tweet uh, regarding ZTE Corp and perhaps easing trade sanctions against the company. I want to pick up on uh, what Dave mentioned, scientific games rising more than 10%. So uh, the shares also of Boyd Gaming, MGM, uh, and, and several other gaming uh, companies also rising significantly on the news that the Supreme Court struck down a federal law that bars gambling on individual sporting events. Joining us now, I am pleased to say, Brian Egger. Uh, he is senior gaming and lodging analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Brian, uh, how big of a deal is this decision by the U.S. Supreme Court? So if you think of the pool um, of, un, of basically what have to date been illegal sports bets that have been taking place and you, you know, assign a reasonable win hold rate to that, there's probably about a $7.5 billion uh, newly released revenue opportunity across, uh, the, uh, across the states that would now have an opportunity to have legalized sports betting among those. New Jersey and Pennsylvania are kind of front of the line, New Jersey being the petitioner here, and Pennsylvania having recently legalized on uh, sports betting, uh, but certainly an opportunity that both casino operators and the back-end operators of sports books would all likely capitalize on.
So who are some of the big uh, winners? I mean, uh, Lisa was mentioning some of the stocks, uh, also adding Boyd Gaming, uh, as she mentioned, uh, up a little bit more than 3%. Penn sure. National Gaming up 4.5%. Empire Resorts higher by 10%. So I would kind of break it down, at least initially, into three categories. First, you've got operators like MGM and Caesars that have existing operations in Nevada and also in Atlantic City. Those are the two major public companies that have uh, operations in the Atlantic City market, which is the petitioner here, which be likely to benefit. Another subgroup, which Lisa kind of touched upon, are companies like Churchill Downs, uh, Boyd Gaming, Penn National Gaming, El Dorado Resorts, which either have or are in the process of acquiring assets in the Pennsylvania market. That state also uh, legalized sports betting subject to the Supreme Court's repeal of POSPA, which happened today. And then the third group, uh, Pim and Lisa, is the operators of the uh, various gaming systems, the sportsbook operators. A couple come to mind, William Hill, uh, the British company operates 55% of all Nevada-based retail sports books. You've got the Stars Group that acquired Sky Betting. And then you've got Scientific Games, which Lisa mentioned, which recently acquired NYX Gaming, which has an open bet platform, uh, which uh, has the ability, although right now uh, takes place in the U.K., to operate kind of the back end of the sports betting platform. So you've basically got... You know, the, the Jersey operators, you've got the operators in other regional states, and then you've got the operators of the equipment and systems that could benefit from the expansion of sports books nationwide. Just to give a sense of how big a business this is, according to uh, one research unit, Americans place $150 billion a year in illegal sports bets. Uh, other research firms put that at a, at a much lower uh, amount. But I'm just wondering from your perspective, are most of these online? Do most people like to go to a venue? What's sort of the look of the most popular place to bet on individual teams? So the sports books in Nevada, although they only generate about 2% of the total gaming revenue in that state, are big traffic generators. They're not necessarily a sizable casino resort generator, but they generate excitement that makes its way by way of casino play into the uh, gaming portions of the casinos. So you've got that portion right now gaming, uh, sports betting, only legal on an unrestricted basis uh, in Nevada. The $150 billion number you mentioned, that's the American Gaming Association estimate of that amount currently wagered illegally on sports betting. And so uh, you, you put a 5% hold rate on that, you get to the $7.5 billion revenue opportunity I mentioned. And to answer your other question, you know, physical venues, actual sports books uh, are where a lot of the action takes place. But all these companies, among them, uh, William Hill and others, have kind of the mobile platforms, uh, the um, uh, other ways where within the state's legal bounds you could use a, a mobile device smartphone device, et cetera, to place your bets. So certainly mobile is the direction of the future, even though there's, there's a large physical presence of these sports books. I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us and uh, shedding light on this issue. Uh, Brian Edgar is uh, our expert when it comes to gaming and lodging for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's our senior industry analyst and just taking a look once again at some of the stocks making moves as a result of the Supreme Court decision uh, avoiding the uh, ban on uh, national sports bet.
Well, just last week we learned that Alliance Bernstein is uh, going to relocate about a thousand of its employees to uh, ne- to Memphis, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I beg your pardon, and uh, perhaps it has to do with compensation levels and uh, making the money go a little bit further. Here to tell us more about compensation and incentive pay in the financial industry is Alan Johnson, President, Managing Director, and Founder of Johnson Associates. Alan, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, what is the current trend in terms terms of, of compensation and headcount in, in the financial services industry. We'll get into the specifics later, but what is the general trend that you're seeing? Uh, compensation is, is projected to be uh, higher in 2018. Incentives are probably going to be up uh, 5 or 10 percent. Um, uh, it's probably more of a mixed bag in, um, in recruiting and employment, uh, probably more outside the uh, traditional money centers, more more in uh, other parts of the country or the world. Um, so it's got, that's a little bit more of a mixed bag, but clearly compensation is trending up for 2018. Yeah, Alan, well, if it weren't, I'd be shocked because uh, pretty much across the board, we've seen gains over the past 12 months. And Alan, I'm so glad you could join us because really, if you want to know what's going on on Wall Street, just check the bonuses and that will tell you everything you need to know. And I was looking just to dig into the details. I noticed that hedge funds, the average uh, bonus was a zero to five percent increase from last year, whereas private equity was five to ten percent higher uh, than last year. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of what this tells you as far as private equity being uh, more of the place to be right now? Well, private equity is continuing its momentum from the last three or four years. The the up the the higher markets, they have had uh, great realizations of prior investments. They've been able to go out and fundraise. So private equity is uh, clicking on all cylinders. Uh, hedge funds have had a very difficult run in the last several years. They're, we're projecting they're going to be up only slightly, perhaps 0 to 5% in incentives for this year. And again, it's their fundamental business model of trying to beat uh, the markets is, is, is much harder. Um, so they're kind of the two different ends. Private equity continues to be on a roll. Hedge funds, hopefully the volatility will help them, but it's a question mark. Well, Alan, uh, maybe shift your attention now to investment and commercial banking. And um, you say that the incentive pay would be generally in line with the entire firm's performance, correct? Yes, the the banks have done um, better. Uh, they don't get the attention that they once did on their pay, but they continue to do well. Uh, what's different than the past that we all remember is that today it's somewhat of the boring parts of the commercial banking, which is commercial lending, uh, retail, credit cards, cars, things that are steady and, and profitable, um, but not as much of their business as the more um, risky uh, parts of the business that they used to do so well at. One thing I'm wondering is how the bonuses at U.S. banks compared to those at European banks and uh, whether you've seen a pretty big uh, attrition out of European banks and into, into the U.S. ones. No, that's a very good question. The U.S. banks continue to, not only a business, but all pay perspectives continue to move ahead. The European banks have kind of been in limbo now for a number of years. Uh, we saw Deutsche Bank cutting back and, and others. So they, they have not had the progress that the U.S. banks have had in the last five or so years, either from a business result, stock price, or pay 
um, they are lagging um, significantly. Well, but I have to wonder, just, you know, with Deutsche Bank, for example, I'd heard a while back that they were actually offering some huge bonuses to try to get uh, talented people to come join them, given how much bad press they've gotten. And I wonder if you do see uh, more sort of one-off huge compensation offers from banks that are looking to sort of revive their franchise. Uh, you certainly don't see that as much in the United States because they don't need to, to to do that and they don't want to. I think they don't need you will to because see, sorry to break in, but but they don't need to because there are so many people looking for jobs that they can hire. Uh, it, most of them have got a pretty stable um, cadre of senior people. They don't really need they don't need a savior at this point. They're 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 certainly looking for really good people, and they're certainly you know going to pay a lot for expensive people, but they don't need the savior. You mentioned if you're more troubled or more um, in, a, in a fall, you're more likely to go out and spend an awful lot of money, a free agent, um, and, and perhaps overpay. Right. Um, the U.S. banks historically have always done that, but certainly in the last five years or more, they have not felt the need to or weren't allowed to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're right. If you're, if you're going to hear an outsized number, it's not likely to be a, a, a brand-name U.S. bank. It's likely to be somebody from... Uh, probably from Europe. All right. Uh, just really quickly, Alan, about 30 seconds. I don't know if you saw the news. Goldman Sachs is uh, just announcing that two co-heads out of the three uh, that lead the securities division are planning to retire. Just really quickly, is this a, is this a significant thing? Um, I think it's a significant uh, move for those two individuals, but certainly Goldman traditionally has had dual heads in a lot of businesses to give them a deeper bench. Um, so I don't think it tells you anything that they continue to rotate quality people through these jobs. And they've been, I think, the uh, the biggest practitioner of having dual heads, which they, their view is we need a deeper bench than relying um, you know, on a, you know, just a single person most of the time. So they still have somebody left uh, from that team. Alan Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure and always important to take a look at what those bonuses are showing us about Wall Street. Alan Johnson, Managing Director and Founder of Johnson Associates. The shares of NXP Semiconductor, they are higher by about 9.5% after Chinese regulators have restarted their review of Qualcomm's application to acquire NXP Semiconductors. Uh, they previously had shelved this work in reaction to growing trade tensions with the United States. This according to people familiar with the matter. So better, uh, who better than Victoria Espinel, the president and the chief executive of the Business Software Alliance, BSA, uh, to tell us a little bit more about what's going on when it comes to trade, intellectual property, and technology between the United States and China. She's also the president of software.org, and she can be followed on Twitter at Victoria Espinel. She joins us in our 1130 studios. Victoria, thank you very much for being with us. Um, just to uh, give people the background, prior to being the head of the, uh, the BSA, um, you were the United States Intellectual Property Enforcement Coordinator for the White House. Uh, and you were appointed by President Barack Obama back in September of 2009. So what is your take on uh, the back and forth over intellectual property and technology issues between the United States and China that currently uh, are in the headlines? So this has been a longstanding issue. Um, in fact, before my time at the White House, I was a 
trade negotiator um, under the President Bush's administration from 2001 to 2007, and I was the chief intellectual property trade negotiator for the United States. But these concerns between the United United States and China have predated even my time at USTR. And so this is, I think we're seeing what may be coming close to the culmination of a long history of concerns where some things in China have gotten better, but other things have have gotten worse, potentially. And I think speaking from the perspective of the software industry, while we definitely have concerns about intellectual property in China, I think there are other types of market access barriers that are potentially even more concerning. So, for example, joint venture rules or the cybersecurity regulations that China has in place. All that said, China is an incredibly important, perhaps the most important bilateral trading partner that we have with the United States. And so what I think is important for everyone to remember at this point is what we really need is for the United States and China to be having a constructive dialogue and be working together on solutions that are going to benefit both of us. I don't think it, it is, it's not beneficial for China or the United States to be harmed in this process. Um, and a second point I would make is it's about the United States and China, but it's also about the global economy. And so one thing that I think would be very helpful that we're not seeing that much of at the moment is for the United States to be working with other countries as well. This is not just about the United States and China. This is about making the global economy work well. And I think um, while it has been heartening to see the administration working through organizations like the World Trade Organization to a certain extent. Um, I think the more that we, the United States, can be building alliances and we, the United States, can be working constructively with a range of countries, including with China, that's ultimately, that's going to be helpful for everyone. So uh, one sort of battle that's being waged between China and the U.S., aside from the very uh, clear headlines about trade tensions, is over artificial intelligence. And China has made a real concerted effort to push forward any new technology on that front. The White House had a meeting last week where it had the executive of some of the leading tech companies in the U.S. And and White House officials said, listen, if you want to uh, experiment, develop artificial intelligence, go crazy. We are going to have a very light touch with respect to regulating this. What is the cutting edge of artificial intelligence and how important is this sort of laissez-faire attitude by U.S. representatives? So I think artificial intelligence is already and will become even more important to our economy. So in the same way that trans- software transformed every sector of the economy, I mean, software is, is like electricity. It is used by literally everyone. I think eventually artificial intelligence is going to rise to that same level of being a truly transformative technology. In terms, there are a lot of different kinds of artificial intelligence. And so one of the things that you're reading in the headlines in terms of China's investments and in research, um, you know, China is investing significant amounts of money, not just at the central level, but at the provincial level. At the same time, in the United States, more through the private sector and through, um, we are also having significant investments in artificial intelligence. And speaking for the software industry, I think what we are most focused on is how you can use artificial intelligence to try to help people make decisions better. So decisions that people are already making, how to make, how to give them the tools that they are making those decisions more quickly and with more information. And I can give you a couple of of examples of that, but I will also tell you, I think this is going to be present in every sector, Um, healthcare, finances, manufacturing, agriculture. I think, you know, five to 10 years from now, we're going to see the ripple effects of this across the industry. Can you give us, though, one concrete example, just so we have a, a picture in our head? 
Sure. I'll give you one that's personally important to me. Um, so I have two boys, uh, six and 10. Um, and for a very short period of time, uh, my eldest son was in the natal intensive care unit, the NICU, after he was born. Uh, and, and happily, he, he was and is fine. But one of the things that's happening in artificial intelligence right now that I think is really is is really amazing as a mother uh, is that doctors are using artificial intelligence to monitor the vital signs for babies that are in NICUs. And one of the things that they have found in doing that is that it is actually a danger sign for for very small babies when their vital signs stabilize, which is completely counterintuitive, right? You would think the vital signs are stabilized. That means um, that that child is doing better and therefore care should move to another baby. In fact, that is not the case. In fact, when vital signs stabilize, that is actually a very good predictor that a crash is coming. And so monitoring of that baby should be increased rather than decreased or the the amount of care and attention to it. Um, Doctors still don't know exactly why this is, but one of the things with artificial intelligence is it it can be great to know why, but sometimes it also just matters to know that it is. And this is is changing the way that doctors are treating uh, babies that are in native and uh, that are in the NICUs. And I think it's really important. That that is one example. You could look at almost any area of healthcare right now and see the advances that are being made in artificial intelligence. And most of them go to, to be more specific, they go to increasing the accuracy of diagnoses, increasing the speed of diagnoses, and then coming up with treatment plans that may not have been as obvious to the doctors without uh, the ability to use artificial intelligence tools. I'm just wondering if you could just give us maybe a 20-second update in the world of piracy and the... Um... Uh, piracy of either stealing software code or intellectual property. It can be anything from movies to music, but that's also a big concern for technology companies. So, you know, I think for software, I don't like the term piracy and I don't use it. You know, I think we incur, we think all companies should use software within the terms of their licenses, but I don't think a company that isn't is, is not an organization that I would call a pirate. Um, I think there are, particularly in counterfeit pharmaceuticals, there are organizations involved in criminal distribution. um, And I think that's reprehensible behavior because of the public safety impacts that it can have. Um, You know, I think there's there's a lot uh, of progress that's been made in terms of trying to address intellectual property issues. And I think that's going to continue. Victoria Espinel, thank you so much for being with us. Victoria Espinel is president and chief executive officer of the Business Software Alliance based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.